0: Good morning, everyone. It's been good to be here this morning. I've enjoyed the Sunday School that we had a minute ago, a blessed time, thinking about how to count it all joy. This morning we're going to finish a a short journey uh, through Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to start turning there, we've been studying this passage a couple times already. First, we looked at how a church is supposed to grow up spiritually. That's in verses 7 through 16. Then, how to put off the old self and put on the new self. That's in verses 17 through 24. And today, we're looking at verses 25 through 32, which lists some of the new behavior that we need to put on to go along with the new self or as part of the new self. There's there's kind of three questions we'll be trying to answer this morning. One is, what what is this specific behavior that we need to put on? And we're going to be focusing mainly on speaking the truth, uh, controlling our anger, and speaking wholesome words. Most of our time will be on that part. Then we'll look at, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? And finally, how do we make these behaviors... That's being talked about here, how do we make sure that's part of our everyday life? And the end goal of all of this is that we become become the kind of Christians that Paul implores us, implores his readers to be at the beginning of Ephesians 4, and that is people who walk worthy of their calling. I think that's what we all want to be. All right, so let's start Ephesians 4, verse 25. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need, Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. As Christians, how should we act? Well, we'll start with verse 25. first new behavior is listed in verse 25. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. That's a quote from Zechariah chapter 8. Now, I don't know if you remember much about the prophet Zechariah. I had to kind of re-familiarize myself with him. He was the prophet that spoke to Israel when they were being restored from the Babylonian captivity. They were coming back to Israel. And in chapter 8 of Zechariah, his message from God to Israel is something like this. God has good intentions for you, but there are some things that you must do. Does that sound a little bit familiar? I want, to, I want to read a few verses from, from Zechariah chapter 8. And I want you to pay close attention to his list of things that you should do. This is Zechariah eight fourteen through 17. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Do you notice the first item on this to-do list that Zechariah gives us? The first one is replace lying with the truth. I think that's kind of interesting. It's the first item on Zechariah's list. It's the first item on Paul's list. So whether God is speaking through Paul or whether He's speaking through Zechariah, the first thing He's asking for is that we replace lying with the truth. Whether Old Covenant or New Covenant, the truth is a big deal to God. He embodies truth. it's, It's part of His very essence. And if we're going to align ourselves with God, we need to align ourselves with the truth. Now you'll notice here in verse 25 it says, Speak each one of you with his, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The emphasis is on members within the body of Christ, which is kind of interesting because it leads me to conclude that even Christians within the body of Christ can sometimes struggle with telling the truth. How interesting. Is it possible? that we here at Bethel this morning could do a better job at telling the truth? I think the answer is probably yes. Let, let's think of some ways in which we might struggle in this area. Now, some of these may not feel like outright lying, and some of them are just kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction. It just comes out, and then later you think, did I really mean that? But if it's, if it's less than what God is asking of us, then we need to do better, right? Here's some kind of general ways in which we might shade the truth. We might, might compliment someone when we didn't really mean it, we just wanted to make them feel good. We might say that we were blessed by something someone shared when it didn't really affect us. We might exaggerate someone else's problems or mistakes, and we might kind of minimize our own or make, make our, ourselves look better than we are. You might say you're glad to see someone when you're really not. Some of these you may not want to correct. You might say you're fine when you're not. That's a pretty common one, I think. These are all ways in which we can kind of come short of the truth. And, and when we're not speaking the truth, the whole body suffers. Every thought about what would happen if a member of your physical body began to lie to the rest of the members. Has anyone ever had an inner ear infection? If so, you have kind of experienced this. This little part of your inner ear, which is responsible for telling the truth about balance and so on, starts to, to lie to the rest of the body. Just that little part can just be completely, uh, just immobilize you. I was, one morning I woke up and I had, I guess, a mild case and I could you know barely get up. It's dysfunctional. It's nauseating. So in the same way, when when a member of the body of Christ is not telling the truth, the whole body suffers. Trust starts to break down, division is promoted, and so on. Well, lying is destructive, but silence is pretty bad too. We're we're all joints in this body. We're all supposed to be ministering to each other, um, bearing each other's burdens, encouraging each other like we heard about, a couple weekends ago, none of this is possible unless the truth is being communicated from one member to the other. And take some commitment to make that happen. Take some strong relationships. That's what we're called to as Christians. The first behavior is put off the lying and embrace the truth. Speak truth to each other. Now let's move on and look at verses 26 and 27 about anger. This is another new behavior that we're supposed to put on. Be angry and yet do not sin. It's actually a quote from Psalm 4, verse 4. And this verse doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. It's saying, if you're you're angry, don't let your anger get the better of you. The implication is that at least some forms of anger must not be sin in themselves. But the point is that no form of anger should lead us to commit sin. Now, have you ever heard the expression, have you ever heard someone say that so-and-so, he just, he made me so mad, he he was so rude, he was so offensive, he just about made me lose my religion. Have you ever heard that expression, someone say, he almost made me lose my religion? Well, that's that's an expression used when someone is about ready to fly off the handle. And if you think about it, it's a pretty accurate description of of what is taking place. Because they're kind of momentarily setting aside their belief system, putting it to the side here, and while they kind of set things straight. At least straight in in their mind. Well, this verse is, is saying that losing your religion is not acceptable. If you think about it, when is it acceptable to say, you know, Uh, Jesus, uh, I'm going to just, you're going to have to step aside, please, just here for a second while I set this jerk straight, you know, take care of this. And then after I'm done, we'll kind of reconnect. When is that appropriate? Don't lose your religion. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Not letting the sun go down. I don't think it's talking about a, a literal time frame here. I think it's saying, that we need to let go of our anger and let go of it fairly soon. Probably within at least 24 hours. Now some teachers would say that it is possible for a Christian to have a kind of righteous indignation and that when when it says don't let the sun go down it's not talking about that kind of anger. And that may be true. I'd be willing to be persuaded. But... It's this verse doesn't necessarily make a distinction of of any form of anger. It just says, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You'd have to kind of add that other part in. I think even appropriate anger, if you will, I think even that can turn bad on us. I think it can turn into self-righteousness, and I think it can turn into hatred. What does it mean to give the devil an opportunity? Well, some translations use the word foothold. Uh, the Greek word is actually talking about a marked-off region, uh, a place, marked-off space. In other words, an area in which Satan can work. Now, I want you to imagine what this might look like. Say you're, you're standing inside your heart, and you're mad, and you're not going to get over your anger. You, you decide you're not going to let go of it. So you get out a piece of sidewalk chalk, you kneel down, And you start drawing lines. You go 10 feet this way, 20 feet down, 10 feet to the left, and then 20 feet up. You've got yourself a 10 by 20 rectangle. And you step back, you dust the chalk off your hands, and you say, All right, Satan, my heart is is God's. It belongs to God, but for right now, we're going to make a little bit of an exception here. You, You can have this spot that I marked off for you just stay between the lines. Satan would be delighted with such proposition. It's, he does not mind small working environments. He, he's going to do his best as soon as he gets in there. He's going to set up shop, and his first priority is to expand those lines. He's going to get you to open your mouth when you shouldn't. He's going to get you to think mean thoughts about other people that you shouldn't. He's going to plant a root of bitterness and then carefully water it and cultivate it and so on. That's it's going to produce all kinds of rottenness. And that's a really ugly picture when you think of it in those terms. I can't imagine any one of us deliberately you know, marking off a place for Satan in our hearts and then turning it over to him. But to some extent, that's kind of what this verse is saying. That's kind of what you do when you have anger that you refuse to get rid of. You're giving Satan a place. So don't lose your religion. And don't hang on to your anger so that it turns into something for Satan to work within, so he can set up shop in your heart. Now we're going to skip over verse twenty-eight. Not that I, I don't think I think it's an important verse too, but we only have so much time here. And I want to look at verse twenty-nine, which talks about unwholesome speech. Now, to to better understand the meaning of the word unwholesome, I brought along something this morning which is already showing signs of trouble. Um, I brought some fruit with me this morning. This, I probably should have brought napkins, actually. This is a banana. Now, the Greek word that is translated unwholesome, this banana very well represents that word. I don't know how well you can see that. Uh, this is an unwholesome banana. It means rotten. Rotten all the way through. Corrupt. And the word is literally rotten, and I, but I cannot find a single translation that actually will use the word rotten. That really bothers me. Because, you know, even here in the New American Standard, where it says unwholesome, over in the sidebar it has a little note that says rotten. Well, why not just use the word rotten? It makes perfect sense. It's literally what it means. It's rotten. But I'll let go of that frustration, I guess. But anyway, um, this, this rotten banana, I want you to observe a few things about it. For one thing, it's, it's pretty disgusting. Um, I don't think that if I went over to the fellowship dinner and put this in the food line, I can't imagine anyone taking this banana. And I can't imagine what you would think if you saw me going and putting this in the food line. You would think, what is going on in his mind? I mean, this is disgusting. No one wants to see that. It's unappetizing. It stinks up the whole place. In fact, Colleen was complaining about how the car smelled this morning already just on the way to church with his bananas riding in it. And it just kind of ruins the whole atmosphere. It, it just, it's, it's revolting. Does he think that anyone is going to be okay with eating garbage like this? And you'd be right to think that way. But that is kind of um, that is kind of how unwholesome speech is, except worse. It, it stinks up the environment. For someone who is, is trying to keep their mind set on things above, unwholesome speech is just a, a detraction. Um, it's disgusting to anyone with a healthy appetite. And to someone who does not have a healthy appetite, it's contaminating. And this is kind of where the, the analogy breaks down because if a rotten banana is not going to hurt you, if, if you're starving and, and all you have to eat is a rotten banana, you, you probably should eat it. It's not going to hurt you. But it, unwholesome speech is dangerous. It defiles the person who speaks it and it contaminates the person who is listening to it and, and hears it and, and is infected, can be infected by it. So this is a rotten banana. Actually, to tell the truth about this banana, it wasn't rotting fast enough for me uh, to to suit me. For once, you know, they always rot faster than I want when I don't want them to rot. This time it wasn't turning color bad enough so I had to freeze it, which did the trick. That is unwholesome. Unwholesome language. And... Unwholesome language, we usually think about what is talked about over in chapter 5 where it talks about filthy speech and and coarse jesting and silliness and stuff like that. And that is certainly part of unwholesome speech. But it can be a bit more than just that. Down in verse uh, 31, it talks about clamor, which is like a loud, angry shrieking and a loud outcry. I heard something like that at Walmart recently. And then also there's... The word slander, which is, you know, cruel speech that tears down somebody else and can also be translated, by the way, into blasphemy. You know, taking God's name in vain. These are all forms of unwholesome speech. You shouldn't speak it, you shouldn't find it appetizing. It, it damages relationships, it damages your witness, it defiles the person who speaks it, and it can contaminate others. And instead, we're supposed to speak edification, Now, I'll tell you the truth about myself. I am slow to speak edifying words because I'll think that if, if I go and get all spiritual sounding right now, that person is going to think I'm weird or I'm fake or I'm just kind of going preacher on them. And so I feel like I have to wait till the time is, is just right until it's really called for for me to, you know, say a word of edification. But too often that time turns out being never. This this verse indicates that we need to be in a continual state of readiness to encourage someone. And it doesn't have to always be all spiritual sounding necessarily. It can be edifying in different ways. But we should be these edifying, grace-giving words should be commonplace in our speech. We need to replace unwholesome speech with speech that is nutritious. And unfortunately, I have been around Christians who, who have, and, and I've probably been one myself, uh, that is more comfortable with speaking something slightly unwholesome. It just comes to them more naturally than speaking something that is upbuilding, and that's a troubling sign. Alright, so several new behaviors that we need to put on. Speak the truth, uh, put off your anger, and speak edifying words. Now let's look at verse 30 that says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What does grieving the Holy Spirit mean? What can grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, in its context it's probably talking at least about verse 29, the unwholesome speech. But I think it can also talk about be referring to uh, lying, or anger, or stealing, any of those things. When we, when we um, put on these destructive behaviors, I believe we grieve the Holy Spirit. And this tells us something pretty interesting about the Holy Spirit: that it's not just some kind of good influence in our lives; it's that is, you know, unfeeling. It's actually a being with whom we have a relationship. And we can do things that affect that relationship. Now, the meaning of the word grieve here is, is a pretty strong word, apparently. It doesn't just mean some kind of mild sadness or disappointment. It's, it's talking about a deep emotional pain. So it hurts the Holy Spirit. When we refuse to put on new behavior, we keep on living the old way. We're rejecting and opposing what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our hearts. And that grieves it. Grieves Him. Now, the word sealed here, this is an interesting word. A seal is a mark of identity or authority. It shows that something is genuine. When the Romans buried Jesus, they rolled that big rock in front of the tomb and they put a seal on it. It's a wax seal that shows that, that, that carries authority with it. This is, you know, the stamp from Rome. I don't know if it was Pilate's seal or, or some other authority, but only someone with sufficient appropriate authority could, could break that seal. And if you tampered with it, you had the, you know, the, the force of Rome to reckon with. It was a big deal to mess with a Roman seal, which is part of the reason why the Resurrection story, this this helps support the Resurrection story, the fact that that seal was considered a very serious thing to, to tamper with. Now, when I graduated from Old Dominion, I got a diploma eventually, and in the middle of it, there's a seal, and it says, essentially, that this scrap of paper really did come from Old Dominion University. It's genuine. In the same way, when the Spirit is in our hearts, it marks us as belonging to God. We are God's people. And when the day of judgment comes, for, for us, it's going to be a day of redemption. Now, grieving the Spirit, unfortunately, is, is something I have done before. And to put it bluntly, it's stupid. The Spirit is the greatest thing that the Christian has going for him, really. It's, it's, it's like our trump card. It's... It's what identifies us as belonging to God, and not only that, it's, it's this powerful force for good in our lives that, that transforms us. So the last thing we ought to do is offend the one who is doing the most good in our hearts, who is the most doing the most good for us. Let's not grieve the Spirit. Now, the last question that we were going to talk about is, How do we make sure that these new behaviors are part of our daily life? How do we make sure that these are part of our reality? When I was was studying this lesson, um, I started to realize, you know, in each of these sections, I don't really talk about how to do these things. You know, wouldn't it be helpful to have a few pointers, you know, on how to manage your anger or how to speak the truth, and stuff like that. Because I'm a person that likes to break things down. I like lists, I like steps, and so on. And I thought about it some more, and I thought, you know, wait a minute, Paul doesn't do that, really. He doesn't give any list of how to do these things, how to get them done, how to put them in action. You know, Paul does not, on the section of, of anger management, he doesn't say, you know, here are your five steps first, Breathe deeply, count to ten, um, imagine yourself in a happy place, uh, remember that someone loves this person, at least his mom does. You know, these things, he, he doesn't give us lists like this. And, and pretty much the rest of Ephesians is the same way. He, there's, he just says, stop doing this and start doing that. And it reminded me of a, a very simple truth that I think all of us are aware of this morning. The truth is that we, we don't enable these behaviors. We're responsible for choosing them. We're responsible for doing these things. But the actual power to do it does not have much to do with us at all. The ability to do it just doesn't come from us. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the last time we studied the, the previous section in, in Ephesians, we we reviewed this verse from Philippians that says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, I think the, the answer is, into how to make sure that these things are part of our daily life, if we're struggling in any of these areas, if I'm struggling in any of these areas, I don't need a list of steps of things for me to do. I need to go back to the source of strength, right? And, and ask myself, am I feeding on the Word? Am I, am I um, surrendered to the work of the Spirit? Am I sitting at the feet of Jesus? Am I cultivating this relationship? You know, am I, in essence, am I abiding in the vine like I'm supposed to? Because you know how much we can get done without the vine, right? Right? And that's why it's so important not to grieve the spirit. And instead being surrendered to the Holy Spirit is such a critical part of making this a reality. And I think more and more that our our job in, in this process of sanctification um, is, is more like you know standing by and, and saying to the Holy Spirit, um, you know, make yourself at home in my heart and, and do whatever you need to do. Rip out the old nasty carpet. Throw out the that ugly couch. You know, scrape the the mold off the ceiling. And do you need me to open that door? I'll open it. And do you need me to open that other door? I'll open that. Do you need me to move that huge stack of furniture in front of that other door that I forgot was even there? We need to be aware of, of what is expected of us, which is Paul does a very good job of outlining that here in these verses. We need to be aware of it. But putting on the new behavior is really more about having a a vibrant relationship with Christ than it is about just determining to do better in certain areas. So let's not grieve the Spirit. Let's be surrendered to the Spirit. Let's walk in the Spirit. and, And in doing that, I think we'll reach the point where we are walking worthy of our calling, which is what we all want to arrive at.